Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, writer, speaker, punk, Henry Rollins is with us, in pictures. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Follow the show if you want anytime access to the show. Subscribe, download, review, uppercase R, <laughs> iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in radio. If you have a subject you would like me to look at on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest, give you full credit, and we'll dive in, deep dive in. We could do a shallow dive. It doesn't matter. <laughs> a dive is a dive. <laughs> welcome. Welcome back to the dive. <laughs> welcome back to Murmur. Today on Murmur, we're going to take a little bit of a trip. We're going to go to Lima, Peru. I was there not too long ago. I was invited by a festival, a young, up-and-coming, interesting film festival, had asked me to come and invite any guest of my choosing and do a talk really about anything film-centric, ideally, but uh, media-centric, moving-centric. So those cool parameters, which are pretty wide, I hoped to narrow. And the way I narrowed it was asking someone who knows a lot about everything, (laughs) Henry Rollins. (laughs) Henry has been a guest of mine before. He is an ad adjunct. No, yeah, I think he's an adjunct professor of the Modern School of Film. Uh, He's not emeritus yet because I want to have him back teaching us more. Uh, I had invited Henry. He's such a fun guy to be around, such an interesting, rigorous, determined, sharp, kind guy to be around. He is dogged in his thought process. He seems like he has a lot of anthropological rules, and whether or not that is the case doesn't cow me. I'm interested in all of it. And the way to do that through the Modern School of Film is a series I call In Pictures, where I ask the guest to pick three films that have changed them for better, for worse, for both. One when they were a child, one when their career went public, and one current or recent film, uh, which makes me smile a little bit because I'm always fascinated what people choose as the current or recent film and how current or recent it is, which is 
a topic in and of itself. However, this is a really cool opportunity to look into Henry's life without looking into it, to look into his art without looking into it, without staring into the sun of it. In Pictures is that perfect Petri dish for Henry. So we did the talk in front of a live audience, and I showed a clip from each movie, and we'll share all that. Uh, I'll spare you my college Spanish for now. A beautiful language, a beautiful country. Lima was amazing. Had a great time down there. Yes, the ceviche is amazing. The people are really sweet. They love cinema. And frankly, parenthetically, the festival is growing. Uh, some of the timings of the events weren't exactly what I'm accustomed to. I'm saying that affectionately because it actually allowed me more time with Henry outside the mic. We had a lot of time sitting around and talking and thinking and hearing each other and hearing him talk about everything and anything. It was really a blessing. Maybe I should adopt such a schedule in my life. Spending time with the guest, I don't usually get to do that because everything is so tightly coordinated. In this instance, it was coordinated, not as tight as usual, but really thank you. Thank you to the organizers and thank you to Lima because those pockets really allowed me to get to know Henry and understand Henry in a different way, in a new way, and maybe a growing way. We'll see. But in the meantime, I'm happy to announce the return of Professor Henry Rollins to the Modern School of Film, (laughs) to Murmur Radio, Henry Rollins and I, Lima Peru, in pictures. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind. My name is Robert Malazzo. I run the Modern School of Film in the United States. I come to cinemas throughout the world and I talk to the people who I admire artistically about the things that change them artistically. This program is called In Pictures and the premise is very simple. I asked tonight's featured guest to pick three movies from three different stages of his life that have changed him. One from childhood, one when his career went public, I don't use the word famous, and one current or recent film. He does often what I'm doing, so I'm excited. I love to talk to people who love to talk to people, so this is a great honor. Tonight's guest is a writer, he is an author, he is a filmmaker, he is a comic, he is a critic, he is a photographer, he is a fanatic, he is a fan. Tonight we're gonna add one title to his very large business card, Professor. He once said, I don't have talent, I have tenacity. He forgot one word, he has taste. Please welcome back to the Modern School of Film, back to Lima, Peru. We are in for a real treat, Professor Henry Rollins. (laughs) Amen. First things first. All right. I would say welcome back as if I lived here, but welcome back to Peru. Yeah, it's my second time here. When were you first here? It was at some point in 2017, not by accident, but by chance. Uh, A woman who manages me for many years, her name is Heidi. We've been working together for over 22 years. And one day she said to me, you're getting on my nerves, the way you pace back and forth in the office making sounds like an animal. We need to get you out of town, because I hadn't traveled for a while. And she said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you to a country, and you're not going to find out where you're going until the day you leave. (laughs) And I thought this idea was fantastic. I said, okay, here's my conditions. It has to be a country I've never been to before. I need the basic weather and the right plug so I can turn something on. And she said, well, okay. And so a couple of weeks went by, and she said, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. And the weather is, you know, it's warm. And here's your plug. 
and uh, you're up at 4 a.m. tomorrow. Get ready. And so she took the travel itinerary, the schedule, put it face down on the stairs to this office I have. And the next morning I got up and I get into a car on the way to the airport and I turned the piece of paper over. I went, I'm going to Lima, Peru. <laughs> and then I went to Cusco and it was fantastic. And so I'm very happy to be able to come back. I like this woman. Yeah, um, she's great. My own selfishness, though, is I wanted to talk to you about movies. Ooh. I mean, right. the joke is, you know, I've spent some time with Henry, and Henry can hold forth on anything. Squirrels, walnuts, uh, and everything in between. But I wanted to talk to you about movies. And in your own humble way, you said, well, what do, what do you want to talk to me about movies? And that's kind of why. I asked you to pick three films. Was it hard to pick three films that really inflected you in different ways? In a way, yeah, because I've been moved by, by films in my life at different times to a great degree yeah. where I would go back and see them over and over again. Like I just needed to keep finding more things in them. And I know that it's fiction, but the emotions you feel are real and the ideas you come away with are real and how they direct you going forward yeah. are real. Yeah. And so the three films that I selected are the ones I, I thought I could really talk about that lead to bigger ideas yeah. that I, where I found things that were so true. It's, I could not believe someone I've never met made something where I'm like, whoa, I've been there, where <laughs> it was almost upsetting. Wow. Yeah. And um, that's one of the amazing things about film, where it's, it's visual. It's different than music. You yeah. just hear it. When you see it and feel it, yeah. it's, it's pre, like a... It's precognitive pre in a sense. It's super powerful. And that's been, for me, the, the brilliance of film, how it can move me emotionally. Because I, I know I'm watching actors. I've yeah. been in a few films. I noticed. But um, it, it's, it becomes so real, it's hyper-real. What uh, Herzog called the ecstatic truth, more alive than life itself. And that's that moment where, you know, certain people in the movie theater are like, that's, that's me up there. It also has that underside where it's, it's almost dream logic, you know, cutting. It's like dream logic. I, I was listening to you talk about Eraserhead. Uh, before we get into Henry's choices, you joked it, it was almost a documentary <laughs> on uh, your dad and, and stepmom. There's a, you know, the, the great David Lynch film, Eraserhead. It's a very hard film to watch because it's, it's so intense. It's, I'm not saying don't watch it, I'm just saying, Buckle up before you go. Um, there's a, a dinner scene in that film that's just really excruciating. And I remember I watched that film at like midnight. That's how you had to see it. That's how you have to do it. Yeah. And I told David Lynch all about that when I met him years later. But there's this really claustrophobic, uncomfortable dinner scene where no one's having a good time. And it reminded me of me sitting with my awful father and, and his miserable, racist, violent wife, my stepmother enduring her poorly cooked food and the, just the utter misery of that. And I was like, oh, come on. Like this, this film's a nightmare, but that's my life right. through a prismatic and perverted lens. And, and again, that's, that's, one of the, 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 that's the great power of artistic filmmaking where you can take something that's completely distorted, but as the case may be, it looks like the truth. To extend the metaphor just a little bit about Eraserhead, Lynch, was married young, had a baby while he was making Eraserhead, and 
as you note in that movie, the, the character is terrified of having a child, as was Lynch. I, we could talk about Lynch all day, and obviously you did Lost Highway and have some amazing yarns, but I want to talk a little bit more about you, to be honest. Um, all right. Let's talk about your childhood in a different way. I was, you know, thinking about you in music and, and you in Ritalin and other kind of bombs and salves. Was movie ever a salve or a kind of pocket to escape to? And also, was it ever a family outing? I can answer to all of that. Um, I was an only child. Uh, I was raised primarily by my mother, who is a very hardworking person. She worked for the government, which means she was overburdened and underappreciated. And, and so she would come home with like eight case files and, you know, just too much work. And she didn't have much time to be the mom. She's busy. So here's a Beatles record. Go to your room and let John Paul Ringo and the rest of them take care of you, which was fine. I, I liked my records and they're my electric babysitters. And so music was the salve because school was intense because I'm hyperactive and crazy and I can't get along with kids. I just end up fighting or biting them. And so I'm on Ritalin, which they gave to any loudmouth kid in those days. And so my room became the sanctuary, which describes 95% of any young society. And I, I was alone with records. When I became older, I started working, had some money. I never asked for an allowance. I always made my own money. I liked that. I would go see movies almost every single weekend. Like the one day I wasn't working, a Sunday usually, I would go with a guy named Ian Mackay, whom you might know from the band Fugazi and Minor Threat. Right. We've been best friends since we were 12, still best friends. That's pretty badass. Pretty, pretty amazing. It's my best achievement. But um, we would go to the movies because you know, we made money, we, we could pay $2.50. And so we would go to the movies to get our minds away, even if it was like a Marx Brothers double feature. Right, right. Film became this amazing thing, like I'm, I can go to the movies. We're like, whoa. And my mother would take me to films. She was quite the uh, eclectic. We talked about how cultured she yeah, was. Super hyper-cultured. And so I would see interesting films with her, but I'd have fun with Ian, like, because we'd go see what we want. <laughs> the French Connection, again, the car chase is great. So, the family outing. I'd see films occasionally with my mother. She was really busy. So we, she had a film subscription to some theater in Washington, D.C. So we'd go and see things like American Graffiti, which made me want to have a radio show, which I do now. But I'd have the weekend visits with my father, which was terrifying. He's an angry, very angry man, liked to drink, liked to curse, didn't like women, didn't like gay people didn't like people who were not white. Sounds like a great guy. Would he ever, could I go to a ball game with him? Yeah, uh, 48 hours of fear with my father, basically. And walking on rice paper, trying not to make the giant angry. He would take me to movies because he didn't know what to do with his hyperactive child. He loved Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. Because Dirty Harry has a big gun, shoots bad guys, and nothing happens to him. There's no trial. He just gets to <laughs> kill bad people like we all want to do, of course. But, but for my dad, that's justice. Right. We went to go see Dirty Harry when it came out. None of you were alive. This is like 1428. It's a long time ago. Pre-Civil War. <laughs> Coal-powered projectors, smoke everywhere. Magic lanterns. It's <laughs> just very sad. Anyway, we saw the film, and it was, you know, for, for a young kid, you're like, wow, a lot of cursing and guns. Eh? Cool. My father liked the film so much, he got on the payphone in the lobby of the theater, 
and called my psychotic stepbrother and said, get down here. You got to see this film. And we watched it twice. Harry, a man has got to know his limitations. <laughs> and so my father took me to see that film every Saturday for, I think, about a month and a half. Wow. And it was a thing where like, I don't want to be here, but what am I going to say? I don't want to see the film. You don't argue with my dad. Do you know if your dad's still alive? No, I don't know for sure. I think that if he did die, someone would notify me. Because if you go online, you can find out every fact about my father because I'm well known. And so I'm all pulled into this family tree business. So I have no idea whether he's alive or not. I haven't seen him since I was 18. Can you watch that movie now and not have a flashback? I, I'm 58 years of age. One day, many years from now, you will be old. It's, it's, gonna, it's gonna be a long time from now. But you start prioritizing your time. Like you look at all these records, like I better get these listened to before I die. And so like, I gotta do that because I won't be able to stand up in three years. So if I watch Magnum Force again, as I remember Clint Eastwood, he always has really bad lighting in his films. It's the lighting is like, dude, light up the room. Anyway, I wouldn't watch it again because I'll never get those two hours back. And San Francisco was very dark in those days. So that's why those movies are very dark. But John Milius was one of the writers on Magnum Force and we will get to John Milius today. I want to square this up a little bit. I asked uh, Henry to pick three films. Before we talk about your choices, I want to tell you what I saw in your choices. Like I read the tea leaves a little bit. Okay. Of the three films, two of them were 1979 films. Yep. Since that's 40 years ago on the, on the button. And a great year for films. The other thing I read the tea leaves on is Robert Duvall. All three have Robert Duvall. Wow. That I didn't even think of. Okay. I, I didn't clock that. I thought you were going to go to a different place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And he's amazing in all of them. I know he owes me 40 bucks. That's it. <laughs> Son of a bitch stole my wallet. Um, what's amazing about that, and I hate to sound moribund so early, but Mr. Duvall turns 88. He is one of those actors that maybe five years from now may not be with us. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to lance it like that, but... He's old. Yeah. Um, but still going strong, still dancing somewhere. Um, the other thing I thought, this was really the lead here, Henry. There is a paternal thing going on. Thank you. That's it. Good night, everybody. Yeah, no, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no. Mr. Freud's online, too? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mr. Freud, your uh, slip is showing. So that's for us. Let's go into the first selection. Uh, the first film I chose was a film called The Great Santini, 1979. And Robert Duvall plays this incredible character. Bull Meacham is the character in this man, The Great Santini. Member of the Air Force, I believe. Up in his years, and I believe now trains. And as he says to one of his fly buddies, I'm a warrior without a war, which justifies the fact that he is an incredible jerk to everyone. And he belittles people, he hectors and emasculates any male that's around him who can't hang with him. And he's incredibly hard on his family. And this is, uh, plays into a thing that's being addressed finally in the world, a thing called toxic masculinity. And, and, and this is a, a father who calls his family members hogs. He gets them up at like insane hours of the morning. All right, hogs, get up. Like, how would you like to share a house with a guy who calls you a hog as, and as a collective body? All right, sports fans, 
time to eat breakfast. Come on, hogs, let's go. And like the whole family just, it just hates this guy because yeah. he's large and in charge and you can't get out of there until you're 18. And the wife, she's chained to him forever. And you, her misery, her heartbreak on her face is just really hard to take. It's a small film in America in the sense of a lot of people haven't seen it. Right. I remember it uh, almost on par with like a mommy dearest in the sense of the iconography of a parental figure who was horrific, was a cultural thing, yeah. and this was it. Where the, he's just a miserable son of a bitch, this guy. And to be around him, it's just, you get some on you. Duval is pitch perfect, the, the entire cast is great. Blythe Danner plays his wife, aka Amazing. Gwyneth Paltrow's mom. There's a great scene, I think, um, What's his name? Michael O'Keefe? Both nominated for Oscars for and, this and film. And well-deserved. Uh, they're in the driveway playing basketball, father and son. Perfectly acted scene that when I saw it, it had such a visceral effect on me, I damn near had to leave the theater. And I'm not one of those people who's given to great emotional responses where I watch something like, ah, I need a hug. I, I'm just not That's shocking, Henry. <laughs> I, I, I'm just not that moved by things, but I watched that and it made me angry, like down to my DNA, angry, scared. And these are people I've never met. Years later, I always wondered how many men or women watched that scene and went, that was my family, that was my life. Mm. And so. Mm. I've, I watched the scene again the other night, and it still causes a lot of discomfort. But the first time when you don't know what is coming, it hit me like a bus. Do you know if your dad ever saw this film? No idea. Do you think he would like it? He'd probably think the great Santini was a great man, and his family were a bunch of sissies who couldn't understand a guy with real American guts. Um, is that all? How do you feel, Dad? You look a little tired. You look a little ragged. Ah! Hey! <laughs> Don't worry, Colonel, you can always get a disability pension. Don't code him, Ben. Don't code him now. Come on, just play. Last shot of the game, Jocko. Give up. Uh -huh. Stay close, Ben. Now watch him. What is Fanny, Ben? Uh, it is I. The Great Ventini! Do you know, Dad, not one of us has ever beaten you in a single game. Not checkers, not dominoes, not softball, nothing. Watch it, Ben. He's getting that look. Come on over here. Come over here, Daddy Bull. It's on. all over, Colonel. Get out of here before I knock every freckle off your face. That's mean. Wasn't that great? Come on, Jocko. You gotta win by two baskets. He said one. I changed my mind. Let's go. Now you're not gonna cheat the boy out of his victory. Come on, be a good sport. Well, who the hell asked you anything? Don't you talk to me like that. I'll play him off. No, you won't. Now he beat you and it was beautiful. Lillian, you better get in the house before I kick your butt. It was just beautiful. No, I mean it. Come on, let's go. Hurry, come on. Touch that home, ball. Dad. You better move, woman. All right. Come on, let's go, come on. He beat you. Get out of here. Kind of like winning, huh, Dad? Get smart with me, Jocko. Kick your butt. Now, come on, guard me. You got to win by two. I'm not going to guard you, Dad. Hey, I hey, won. hey, hey, Mama's boy. Mama's boy. 
I bet you're going to cry. I would play basketball with my father in the driveway on Sunday. And I'm not, a, I'm not good at sports. I, I'm not, you know, I couldn't do any of those moves. I'm horrible. Um, but I could get by enough to where I could kind of throw the ball. So anytime I would go towards the, the basket, my father would take his open hand. He had great aim. And he would hit me a little below the waist in an area, as you know, that is anatomically hypersensitive to a male. Which the pain, it's, it's almost as bad as getting sued. The, the, the pain is, some of you men can attest to this, you're wincing right now, would literally drop me to the ground. And he would take the ball and score. And that was my dad. That's abuse. I mean, that's physical abuse. Yeah, well, you know, he was, I guess, a very unhappy person. And so when I saw that film and that scene with no warning whatsoever, it was uncomfortable watching it with you a few minutes ago. I see you cry. Come on. Squirt it. Come on. Cry. Come on. Cry. Come on. Come on. Just a few. Come on. Squirt a few. Come on. When they're going up the stairs. And Duval is bouncing the ball off O'Keefe's head. I was just thinking, man, let's go back 25 years ago. Me and my dad in the driveway. Let's go. Come on, little girl. Cry. My favorite daughter, Ben. I swear to God, you're my sweetest little girl. This little girl just whipped your ass good, Colonel. I'll lay that guy out. I'd love to beat him up. Just to see the look on his face. But, you know, we're all too old for that. And who knows if he's even alive? He'd be 90-something. Did you ever raise your hand to him? Uh, no. Uh, I, never, I never had the guts to say, you know, screw you two. I just took it. I just realized uh, one day I'm going to turn 18. And on my 18th birthday, I had dinner with my dad. And he's, you know, a couple in and telling me something. <laughs> Women are bad and <laughs> something. And I just thought to myself... I never have to see you again. And I didn't see him again until 1987. I'm at the 930 Club. It's a venue in Washington, D.C., where I was born and raised. One of the great rock venues. Great rock venue. And uh, my band, the Rollins Band, is about to uh, do its first ever show in Washington, D.C. Black Flag had broken up a few months before. Place is packed. I was very gratified. And I'm standing with Ian Mackay. And Ian said, Paul. We always called him Paul. He said, don't look now. And I hadn't seen his face for years. He had aged. And it was almost a psychedelic experience. I'm looking at his face like, wow, you're old, man. And he said, you're famous. People come up to me and they want to meet me because of you. And you've never asked me for money. Like, you're great. And all I could say to him was, you still call black people spades? And he went, we are Americans. We are colorblind. I was like, I got to go. And I just left the beer on the counter of the bar, and I just walked away. And I never saw him again in my life. And to, I have no idea if he's alive or not. The film was based on a book by Pat Conroy. Did you ever read the book? No, I didn't. Sort of a Romana Clef. Uh, Pat Conroy said, I hated my dad before I knew there was a word for hate. Uh, he also said something I want to throw back at you a little bit. He said, I miss him. He said, I miss his lack of modesty, which is interesting. You know, it's, it's almost like a prisoner getting out of a prison, missing the prison. Do you miss him? No, not at all. 
yeah, I don't hang out with idiots. Not if I can avoid it. And it's like, but he's your father. That does not work for me. I don't have that blood bond thing. Like, he's your dad. You should talk to him before he dies. Uh, no. And I don't even have any hatred at this point. I got, you know, I'm a busy guy. I'm not, I'm not taking it. I'm not losing a day to hang out with this racist. I mean, he reminds me of Donald Trump. Always right, never wrong, thin-skinned. You know, you look at him too long, you know, here comes the hand. There was no good times. He would, the scariest thing he would say, roll down your window. We'd be in traffic and he's at this large Buick station wagon and I'd have to roll down the window and lower myself because he was going to yell some racial epithet at the Asian driver next to us. Or if the guy in front was driving too slow, he would just put the high beams on and like fry the guy's eyeballs in his mirror. And it occurred to me, we're gonna get beaten up. Someone's just going to beat us up. This is before you feared getting shot, Los Angeles. And he was like this all the time. I'd go home to my mother's microscopic apartment on Sunday evenings and, how was it with your father? Gotta go listen to Yellow Submarine. Gotta go, I gotta go back to my room. One time, he, I had the, the weekend of torture, and I'm sitting here, father's driving here. My father was an economist. He's a numbers guy. Oil, water, electricity, utilities. And this is back in a thing called the Cold War, and when Russians were very bad. Now, apparently, Putin's very good, according to my president. <laughs> anyway, and I'm a little kid. I was like five or six. And I, an economist, a word I don't understand, and communist, kind of sound the same if you're that high. I, I said to my dad, Dad, are you a communist? The right hand came off the steering wheel. He didn't even think. Dad, are you a communist? Bam! And, and like, it, my face went numb. And it wasn't the pain. It was that he hit me with such force. And I'm a little tiny kid. I got a head the size of a little bowling ball. I'm a tiny, small, skinny, frail person. Pow! I mean, it, he didn't... I, I, I think I got to C-O-M-M in communist, and the arm was already in motion. Wow. And I, I was speechless. I mean, it was like an assault. I, I think I just like fell out of the car. And by the time I got to the lobby of the apartment, I was hyperventilating. I was just like, I didn't know what to do. And like the, the nice guy, Henry, are you okay? <laughs> I, I didn't know this man. And I get into the apartment. I, my mom is like, what's the matter? And I explode in tears for like the next year and a half. Mm. And past that, I just never, after that, I was just like, just don't say anything. Because I made a mistake. And it was incredible how much that screwed me up. And that's uh, when I started becoming a very angry young man. It served me later, as soon as I found a thing called punk rock. Duval will get us where we're going next, but I want to ask you one last question. If you heard he passed and you could go to a funeral or service, would you go? No. I, I, I am in antithesis against a lot of Western ideas, like working until retirement. Like I'm going to sit in a cubicle at a job I hate and one day I get to leave and have five years of doing what I want and then my heart explodes because of all the bad food I've been fed. Uh, no, so I reject 
the idea of necessarily going to a funeral. I went to one a few weeks ago of the guy who produced my first record. To me, a funeral, I guess everyone gets to say goodbye. Bye, asshole. I, who, I don't get that day back. I, I couldn't be bothered to either parent to go to their funeral. And your mom's still, Iris is still alive? She, she is, yeah. yeah. Correct any of the record here, um, so to speak. You changed your name. Was it around 81, 82? 81. 81. Um, what did the family think when you changed your name? I'd never asked. No, not even permission-wise, reaction-wise. I never asked, because uh, I wasn't talking to my father. And my mom, I think she probably felt, wow, you're trying to get away from your dad, I can understand, because by that time, she was Iris Silverman. She had been remarried. You know, because I, 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 I was never the bad kid. I'm not, you know, um, Iris, we have your son downtown in a prison cell. That was not me. I worked on the weekends. Like, where's Henry? He's in that window, shop window, like... Working. Pet store. Yeah, I, I worked. I, I wasn't, I, I was accountable. And I went in, I graduated from high school, went right into the working world, bought, had my own apartment. I got into music, found my way. And she went, wow, this guy's pretty self-sufficient. And he was on TV yesterday. So I think she kind of went, well, he's doing his thing. And he's not trying to camp out back in his old bedroom from high school. She goes to see this band I was in, Black Flag, and she sees this- I've heard of them, yeah. Immense tattoo on my back with this huge sun and the word search and destroy on my, she'd never seen it before, like got it put on, and I'll never, I hate to be vulgar in front of you, but she looked at it, she said, Henry, fuck. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was kind of my mom. From the depth of things to, to surfing, and we'll talk about surfing in a second, but this is kind of the mid portion of this spectrum I get goosebumps just thinking about us talking about this film. Tell, tell them the film and then... The, the one that was made the same year? Yes. Okay. Um, the first time I saw Apocalypse Now, Ian MacKay and I walked like three miles to the movie theater, no car, and we watched Apocalypse Now because apparently it was like this devastating thing about war or something. And we found out later it's more about something than it is about war. <laughs> and so we'll get to that. We left the theater speechless. And we were, you know, in those days when you're young, you're used to those epic walks. You know, like, you know, I'm going to walk for an hour and a half to get home. So we had this long walk through northwest Washington, D.C. And, you know, smoke coming out of our ears. Both of us fairly speechless. Taxi driver did the same thing to us, as I remember. Anyway, we walked home from like a Sunday matinee, daylight, not knowing what we had just seen, but feeling somewhat traumatized. Like, what was that about? There was a war in it but it's about so much more. And so I believe I went back to see it weeks later by myself because I became obsessed with it, trying to get an understanding. Like, what did I just see? And this is me as a, as a teenager, a very young person, very inexperienced in the ways of the world. Then I started watching it again obsessively in my 20s, where I saw a, quite a bit more of the world and understood everything from war, men and women, adulthood differently. Mm. And then I saw it after a, a particular event in my life we'll get to, and then I saw it again differently. And all through those years, I saw myself sometimes as Harrison Ford's character, a fantastic cameo, <laughs> great cameo. What a funny name check. Well, just, you know, I- It's wild. He, he can't even handle the information. He's yeah. stuttering and his like, perfect acting. And then I would often see myself as uh, 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 Captain Willard, Martin Sheen. And then sometimes I would see myself as Kurtz. 
in the bravado way, like, no one understands him, man. I never saw myself as Dennis Hopper's character. <laughs> Fantastic as it was. Right, right. Robert Duvall was uh, promoting The Great Santini in 1979. Someone asked him about Apocalypse Now. You know what he said? I made that three years ago. <laughs> this, this came out in 1979 in the US, it was made in 1976. The little corollary I ask and throw out to you, you must see Hearts of Darkness. I was about to say, can't tell you what to do. Right, but, but this is close. You gotta see Hearts of Darkness. Must see it. The documentary of the making of Apocalypse Now. It's as amazing as the film, the wife, Eleanor. Eleanor Coppola. Eleanor Coppola made one hell of a documentary. The kids were all over there. Sophia as a young girl, Roman as a young boy, they were all in the Philippines. A couple of factoids, I just, I can't, this movie just vibrates me a little bit. Um, Coppola went to Lucas in 1969, a young filmmaker named George Lucas you may have heard of, and said, I want to make a documentary about the Vietnam War, but I have, I want to make it in Vietnam. Go to Vietnam, make a film narrative while the war was going on. So this meta, meta, meta. And Lucas said, if you go, you're gonna be sucked into the swamp. He wasn't joking. Three years later, there was a script, John Milius, who was another one of the film school brats, originally called The Psychedelic Soldier. Yes. There was a popular expression, Northern California, maybe in the sort of hippiedom of it all, Nirvana now. Yes. There were recastings. Harvey Keitel was originally Willard. I would love to see that footage. After three days, they decided they had to recast with Marty Sheen. Wasn't Mick Jagger involved for a minute? Maybe Fitzcarraldo. Yes, that's Fitzcarraldo, sorry. It's okay. Um, sorry. I don't know. Well, no, like Jagger yeah. was cast well, for a minute. Yeah, and then he out. was Klaus Kinsey. Yeah, sorry. He was before Klaus Kinsey. There were actually screen tests exist as him as Klaus yeah, Kinsey. That, that's what I was Sorry, yeah, say. no, no, I'm laughing because I knew exactly where you were punching that through. And then there's this guy, Robert Duvall, playing this guy named Kilgore. Like, there's always these, like, oh, right, and there's... Uh, Hopper. Oh, right. And Coppola's in the film. Do, do you remember that? There's a moment where Coppola's in the film because there's a crew telling Martin Sheen, don't look at the camera. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Keep fighting. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, you know, keep fighting. You're a soldier, right? We're doing a war thing. Exactly. There's so much stuff and you can't even get to all the stuff. I've never seen a man so broken up and ripped apart. I've seen horrors. Horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. It's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what Horror means horror. Horror has a face. And you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. So Robert, before anything, uh, a quick anecdote that you've never heard. A, a friend of mine was uh, working for Gary Oldman, the great actor, when they were working on his ver Coppola's version of Dracula. And as you know, the whole cast goes to the vineyard and they all live together and act together and rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. So she was Gary Oldman's assistant. I did a student film with her in the 80s, uh, UCLA. 
And she said, I, I'm up at Coppola's place. She called me. I'm like, wow. She said, I told Francis that uh, your favorite film is Apocalypse Now. And uh, said, can, I, can you give Henry something? And so uh, he went out uh, where the boat that Willard goes up the Nung River on, PBR Street Gang, it's in his yard. No. And he uh, said, tear off part of the, the canvas tarp and you can give that to Henry. So I have this rectangle piece of cloth of PBR Street Gang. And it's like this faded combat olive green murdered piece of canvas. Cool. <laughs> Why did you choose that? part of the film, the, 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 some of the initial thoughts of Kurtz to Willard. Um, first off, just as a, a human being in the world watching that scene, Brando's perfect. Uh, the pauses, uh, the poignancy, and then there's the dialogue, what he's saying. Um, horror and moral terror are your friends. If not, they're enemies to be feared. And before that, he says, it is impossible to explain with words what to someone who does not know what horror is. And I obviously have heard that line a million times. I just clocked that and held that for decades. Like, wow, that's, that's heavy. What does he mean? And then in December of 1991, my roommate and I in Venice, California, are walking back from the supermarket. And in front of this house that I rented, he had the front room, I had the back, uh, to Venice Shoreline Crips, gangsters, put guns in our face. They said, this is a holdup. And my friend Joe, he didn't have any money. I had 40 bucks. So they take my money and they said, we're going to go in your house. Is there anyone in there? There's no one in there. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be dead in the next few minutes. And I wasn't, I'm not a tough guy. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not brave, nor am I tough. I, I, I said, okay, how do I keep us from dying? And it, everything slowed down. I got very quiet. It was like this weird ambient dream where the guy is hitting the back of my head with a gun. And he says, if you scream, I'm going to blow your bitch head off. And I said, okay. So we, we walked and I put the key in the door and he says, is there anyone in there? I said, yeah, I'm lying. And he didn't believe me. And so I'm like, how can I slow things down? And so I, <laughs> I had my groceries. I, opened the door, picked up my groceries, a bag in each hand, walked into the living room, put the bags down, put my hands up, because there's a gun at the back of my head. I'm thinking, okay, play for time, because they're obviously gonna rob us, put our faces down on the mattress, and shoot us. Like, we're not getting out of this. So uh, I'll give them the video machine player, uh, I'll unplug it, and I'll, they'll go away. And while that's happening, I'm like, how can I get us out of this alive? I hear a scuffle behind me, and I hear shots. And I remember standing still with my grocery bags on either side of my feet with my arms up in the air, thinking gunshots sound really loud in the living room. And then my legs had like a mind of their own. They said, we're leaving. Hey, upper half, you can come if you like, but we're out of here. And so my legs went, I went, okay, I guess I'm coming along. And that neighborhood was pretty intense. And I had actually rehearsed unlocking the back door if I ever had to get out of that house quickly. Pull up, click, boom, open. I jumped over the back fence of the backyard and ran up the alley to a, a fried chicken place that had a payphone. And I called 911 
And I said, uh, me and my friend just got robbed, and here's the address. And I put down the phone. I'm like, well, what do I do now? And I see a plainclothes police car, which were prevalent in that neighborhood, lots of crack being sold, come up the sidewalk. And I'm like, I'm the guy who called you. Get on the ground. I go, I'm the guy who called you. Get on the ground. They're like, throw me on the ground. I'm handcuffed. I'm like, well, okay, but I'm the one who called you. They said, we, you're not under arrest. We just have to know where your hands are. Fair enough. And they throw me in the back of this cop car, handcuffed. And I remember looking out the window at two cops talking about a used car one of them had bought and another one talking, trying to sing Billy Idol's version of Moni Moni. Like, you know, you're like, who's that fag doing Moni Moni? And they're like, hey, laughing. I'm like, okay, this is LAPD. And then there's a cop in the front seat with one of those iron notebooks, that, that, that clipboard that has the metal cover, and he's writing. And I said, excuse me, and he won't register me. I, I said, excuse me, can you, can you tell me what's going on with my friend? And he said, uh, hold on, sweetheart. I went, oh, I see. My roommate and I are gay, and so you don't like me. Got it. And I said, can you please tell me what happened to my roommate? And he looked behind him over his shoulder to me very casually and said, oh, he's dead. And I, I'll never forget it. I could see in my mind a roll of film on, or tape, magnet, you know, recording tape, yeah. unspooling and tape just flying everywhere. So I'm taken to the police station. They have to hold me all night because I'm the witness. The next day they, they turn me loose. And I don't know what I'm to expect when I go back to the house. I thought Joe was shot and killed right behind me in the living room. So I said, well, get ready. We might have to clean up. I, I have no idea. I haven't slept. So I get back to the house, paparazzi, camera people are waiting. And so I have to figure out what happened. And I see this disruption on the grass in front of the house. And I see my friend's brains are all over the lawn. And his blood is on the little walkway. Meanwhile, his father, who lives in Los Angeles, is on his way over. His mother, who lives in Northern California, is on an airplane coming down so they can come into the house and fight over Joe's belongings. The only thing I can think to myself is, I can't let Joe's parents see his brains on the lawn. That's not a good thing. So I go to the kitchen and get a plastic bowl, water, a washcloth, and I pick the brains out of the ground. There's a lot of it, it's all over me. And I clean the stairs and the sidewalk. So I have this bowl of brain matter, human blood, and dirt. What do you do with brains and blood of your good friend who got murdered 12 hours before? Do you put it into the sink, into the Venice sewer system? So I just put the bowl down in the kitchen. Like, I'll deal with that when I finally figure out what the hell you do with that. The detective, because I'm still under investigation because somehow I might have been the shooter. They take me back to the scene. They said, show us where you were standing. And my grocery bags are still there. I said, right there. The detective said, the man, he tried to kill you. 
And I remember my entire body, they say your blood runs cold. My whole body is like someone flushed me with cold water. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look, the first bullet or one bullet went into the door jam, missed you by about this much, would have gone right into your heart through your back. We found the other bullet in the kitchen in a box of Alka-Seltzer. It ricocheted around and dropped into a box of Alka-Seltzer. He said, that was probably a headshot that went over your shoulder and the other ones went into your friend. And I remember selfishly thinking to myself, someone tried to kill me? Where you momentarily forget your friend is dead. Like, someone tried to kill me? Show me where this guy is. And in the days that followed, sleepless, I understood there's no way to explain to someone who doesn't know what the meaning of horror is. Because I now understand what horror is. I can, I can explain it to you, and obviously you're understanding me, but you won't understand it like I understand it until something like that happens to you. And unfortunately, you are unable to un-understand it. You never, there's no closure, there's no fixing it, there's no moving on, there's no getting better. I know what I know. And horror is like an electrical current. It courses through your body. And because of that experience, and I, again, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not a brave guy. I'm not a tough guy. Any 16-year-old can beat me up. I don't have any fear. And I'm not trying to say I'm brave. Big difference. I don't have any courage. I just don't have any fear. And so I am, in a lot of ways, emotionally unavailable. Like, don't go there. It's scary. Well, I'll come back or I won't. And that's what took me to places like Pakistan, where I was there when Bhutto was assassinated. That was interesting. And going all over the world by myself, where people go like, are you going to be OK? I'm like, well, we'll see. Or so the guy at the hotel says, it's Nairobi. Don't go outside at night. I'll see you later. Or maybe I won't. And there was a moment when I was in Baghdad in Iraq a few years ago. I'm in a building. And one of the soldiers said, sir, we have an idiot who lobs mortars over the wall every day around this time, sir. We might be in a mortar attack. And I'm signing autographs for soldiers. It's a USO trip. And within two minutes, the daily mortar attack comes in right outside the building that we're in, which is a reinforced building. I'm not a tough guy. Nothing's going to happen to me. And the concussion of, of a mortar, it feels like someone, a ghost, has punched you in the sternum. And if you remember from Apocalypse Now, someone says the concussion sucks the damn air out of your lungs. That's how I know that's true. And I'm signing a photo. R-Y-R-O, boom, boom, L-L-I-N-S. And I said, so that's the mortar attack. And one guy said, sir, you've got big balls, sir. And I said, no. And they go, well, then aren't you scared? No. And they went, why not? I said, because I'm crazy. And they all were like, whoa. And that's the effect of that. Yeah, I use Wagner. Scares the hell out of the slopes. Put on sidewalk up, make it loud. And the Romeo Fox trot, shall we dance? One quick thing and then we'll move on to our next because Duval's going to get us to our next as well. Coppola's idea was to show this movie in one cinema 
only one cinema that you actually had to pilgrimage to go to, like Wagner and Beirut uh, Festival in mm -hmm. Germany. The last film, um, the lead actor actually based his character off two things, Frankenstein and Duval's performance in To Kill a Mockingbird, another great performance. Uh, tell them what the film is. It was uh, the summer of 1997. I was on a, a tour that was very hard to endure. It wasn't going well, and we had a night off. And so my bandmates, we went to some movie theater, one of those American strip mall situations where there's eight theaters in one theater. I forgot what they went to see, but I went to go see Sling Blade because everyone I knew who had seen it said, Henry, you should really see Sling Blade. It's a, a pitch-perfect, independent film on every level. Okay. So I saw Sling Blade, and it occurred to me that it was perfectly cast, perfectly written, perfectly shot, and the, the story and the message, it was just one of the most marvelous things that I had ever seen and became a pal of Billy Bob years after. And one day I was interviewing for my little TV show on the Independent Film Channel and he was walking over to get something. And I remember walking right behind him to the horror of all the producers and the cameramen going, hmm, hmm, hmm. And they're like, don't do that. I said, come on, I'm being funny. <laughs> And um, the reason I love this film is because it shows you many gr American tragedies uh, that bedevil America all at once. Poverty, drunkenness, domestic abuse, toxic masculinity, and children who get destroyed by an, a system that fails. All, everyone, but the children get ground up the hardest, the children and the women. Billy Bob Thornton made up the character. He was on a TV movie. He was so bored and so angry that the, the role was so slow that he looked in the mirror and started making faces. Yep. And he said the voice came to him and that was Carl. The role is very physical and he toured it as a one-man show. He kept ground up glass in his shoes so he would limp. They only did one or two takes of everything. Robert Duvall who plays, there's your bingo. He plays Carl's father uh, who's dismissive and, uh, about, and unapologetic and in denial at how horribly he treated Carl and the whole family in, in, in the scene. He looks like he's this far from death. And Carl goes in there, I'm, I was just a boy. And Duvall dismisses him by going <laughs> And he's just a guy who sits alone on a pension drinking and waiting for death. Yeah. And um, Carl goes back and sees the place where they buried the, the prematurely, the miscarriage. He goes, little feller. And you see the compassion the, the genuine love that Carl has. And there's a scene in the film, uh, it's my favorite scene, when he's sitting with the boy who he befriends. Would you do something for me if I had to ask you to? You know I would, whatever you want. When you leave out of here tonight, I don't want you going nowhere and staying with that door. He's got it out for you tonight. I got me a feeling too. You ought not be aware when he's all liquored up and mean that away. Your mama neither. When you get up here and leave, I want you to go over to that feller's house. Your mama's friend. I want you to give me your word on it. Okay. I give my word on it. Is everything gonna be okay? Are you all right? Yeah, 
Everything's going to be all right, boy. And he says, I'm, I'm going to put my arm around you for a second, if that's OK. And the boy says, OK. And he's like, well, OK then. I kind of want to put my arm around you for a minute. And then I'm going to get up and leave out of here. I love you, boy. I love you, too. And he gives him a, a piece of paper that he's drawn on, and the writing says, you will be happy, because he knows that, uh, that the, the, the boyfriend is dangerous and mom is working too much, and this kid is kind of screwed. He has no father, so this weird guy, freshly sprung from the mental ward, becomes the father figure. And it's just this, to me, it's just one of the most beautiful stories I've ever seen it's, in, in, in anything. It's gorgeous. I also thought of you, the Dan Lanois, Daniel Lanois, beautiful score. Great guy. Great guy. The other thing I thought of you was the child, uh, the character name is Frank, when he's throwing bottles at Dwight Yoakam. The anger and the, at the, at the step man, quite yeah. powerful. You know, the, the, I don't know how many of you suffered the broken family, but you know, my mom was a, a heterosexual woman who lived in a city, so she enjoyed the company of men. And some of those men, you know, they were nice to me and some weren't. And some were really awful. And so that scary boyfriend, this male presence in your little abode, I, I saw Dwight Yoakam, that's pitch perfect and, acting. And Dwight called it the best experience of his life. And how many times have you seen like the nice guy at the store, Ritter's part, where he has to be, it's okay, and he's quietly gay. He's like, no one can know, because they'll kill him. Someone will beat him to death on the street there's in that great, town. There's a great moment. It's, it's nighttime, and John Ritter says to Billy Bob Thornton, I want to take you to lunch. And Billy Bob said, I just ate. No, he said, not now. Uh, <laughs> Duval called Billy Bob the redneck Orson Welles because he only did two takes of everything. And perfect acting. We got a break, but I, I can't leave without Coda-ing this because you've been in a... I just want to say one thing as if Henry's not here. I, I've been here three days, and the festival is wonderful, and it's growing. I, there's not a guest I could have ever brought here who would have been as patient and thoughtful and understanding about everything, uh, about being on the road, talking about things, being a fish out of water. So I want to thank you publicly. You got it. Because you've been incredible. <laughs> I'm telling you. So, okay. Um, last question, then we got to go bye-bye. What's more rare, a great movie or a great record? Uh, I think a lot more can go wrong in a film. Uh, I'm an actor when they say, hey, you want to be in a movie? Yeah. I, I admire actors, but I really admire directors. Like, how the hell did you do that? And when you meet the real good ones, like you meet a guy like David Fincher, you're like, wow, you're smarter than like everyone in the room put together. They just have a bigger idea of things. Coppola, like, is he smart? Yeah, genius, how do you define it? Well, he's Coppola, man, yeah. But what is it? How many grains of sand am I looking at on the beach? I mean, like, it's, you just can't put your finger on it. Directing, seeing the whole thing in every shot, Shooting the film every time you shoot a scene, like the whole film, that, I, that defies my brain. And so I've made a, a handful of records in my life and I've been in like 60 films and TV shows. Make, there's so many moving parts in a film or a TV show, cast, attitudes, aggravation, agents, managers, money, ego. And so I think it's much harder to make Citizen Kane than it is to make Houses of the Holy. Both are fantastic. What do you think about movies now? Are you, are you giving up on the love? Do you think we're in a good disposition now? I skew more towards independent film because I love it when there's not enough budget. Again, Sling Blade, there wasn't the budget for three takes, there's only two. 
So we need a lot of outdoor scenes because we can't afford to light a room. So let's shoot outside. Um, we'll get locals to be the actors because we can't afford Hollywood actors. So you get the local guy to be the lawnmower repair guy. And that was a guy who's just like, yeah, Billy called me up and I did the part like, wow. Because otherwise it's, it's the Avengers, which I'm sure is great. It's just those kind of films, they don't leave me with anything. It's all very well acted and well shot. I just don't care. Anything with Tom Cruise in it, I automatically don't care. And, and I'm not saying he does a bad job. He's, he's great. I don't care. I want to see Carl. I want to see Kurtz. And so it's the, in the independent films, you go, boy, those actors are raw. That must have been painful. And that's what I, I want people to, when I act, the thing that, you know, I, I never took a lesson. The thing that really aggravates me in films, I'm always in an intense film where I have to die usually, is acting with actors who will not commit to the moment. Where right between takes that are on their cell phone. I want to slap this like, I'm about, you and I are about to have an argument on two pieces of tape on, on a, a piece of cement. You, I'm coming for you, man. Let's just move in together and just act all day. So I never wanted it to end. And yeah, that's what I yeah. like about independent film. I'm sure in the big movies, those actors are serious as a heart attack. I mean, you don't get that big for nothing. Hands up who would pay to see Henry Rollins in Avengers Part 16. Me, I want the work, I'll do it. Henry Rollins, everybody. Thank <laughs> you, Lima. Thank you, Peru. Thank you, Aleste. We'll see you again soon. Ciao. Muchas gracias. Hasta luego. Thank you, man. At the very end there, I don't know if you heard it, it was kind of buried in the applause, but Henry leaned over to me and said, I wish it were longer. I do too. I want to do more of it. It was great fun. And again, spending time with Henry and Lima, I recommend it. I want to thank Henry Rollins for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. You can be with us all the time on Murmur. Let's go to Lima. Let's go back. I want to go back. <laughs> Murmurradio.com is the website. Social handles at MSF Murmur. Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe to Murmur, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Share the show. Review the show. If you have a topic you'd like me to handle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest. I can't say I'll match it with a country, though. Unless you have the budget for us. <laughs> never say never. See ya.